Well, my name is Tom, and I'm here to say I like learning everything in a major way. We got... that's it. That's as far as you... Maybe next episode you can add the next line. Oh, yeah. No, that's it. That's it. Don't encourage him. Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. Today we are going to be covering a big main science topic. We're going to be answering a science question and we're going to be taking a little walk around, a little wee miscellaneous topic. (laughs) My name's Ella and today's main science topic is How we study human brains without human brains. Ooh. (laughs) Model animals. Oh, 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 oh. I I know the answer to this. Is it a shadow? Is it a whole... I know this word I've heard. This was in in The Hobbit, right? Is it time? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Wait. This is not something that I've ever, like, questioned. Thought about. You know? Yeah. Hi, my name is Caroline, and this episode, we are going to be asking the question, are cats a liquid? (gasps) (laughs) I'm going to reserve my comments about this until we get to the question. Oh, Ella has first-hand experience for sure, I feel like. (laughs) Boy, howdy. (laughs) My name's Tom, and today's topic is, in my opinion, the coolest thing since sliced bread. Why do we say that? We can edit this out. Why do we say that? Do you guys know... Sorry, I just said that without thinking about it. Do you say that in the what, UK? Like, you don't say the cool. Bread? Yeah, yeah. You said the coolest thing since sliced oh. bread. And sliced bread isn't but, cool, so I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. But do you, do you guys? Is that yeah? We say the best thing since sliced bread. Do you know yeah. why? I would assume because it's like a. You know what? Let's just do the miscellaneous topic on that instead. Today's topic is the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> nice, good bit. Once again, as with. Some of my miscellaneous topics, I am imploring you to trust me on this journey. (laughs) I trust you. Before we jump into the show, we have our very first Jumbotron. Our first Jumbotron is from Andy Kay. Thanks, Andy. Thank you very much, Andy Kay. Who's it for? It's for Caroline, Ella, and Tom. So it's for all three of us. I've heard of those people. So Andy says, hey guys, welcome to Maximum Fun. Since I heard your first episode, I was completely hooked on the fascinating topics and amazing conversations. You really bring everything to life. God, I really do, don't I? You're just, you're so good at this, Ella. No, uh, this, this Jumbotron was for us, which is incredibly kind. Uh, but normally a Jumbotron is just a little message that we will read out loud. It's great for if you want to congratulate someone on something they've accomplished. If you have a project you want to shout out, maybe a book or an art shop. If you want to surprise a friend who listens to the show too. Uh, or if you just want to make us say something silly. Uh, we would love <laughs> to help out with that. It supports the show and it makes us happy to hear about y'all. And you can get your own Jumbotron at letslearneverythingpod.com forward slash Jumbotron. Is that right? (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Amazing. Today's main topic is how do we study human brains without human brains? Specifically, human brains. <laughs> you you are correct to clarify, but we also I d- also did just have that moment where the word loses meaning entirely. <laughs> I said that. 
I'm saying human brains. I was clarifying that because Caroline before mentioned animal models, which yeah. is not what we're talking about today because ah, those okay. are not human brains. Those are animal brains. Valid point. Yeah. Can't okay. Yeah. That. Good to have that off the table. <laughs> A little bit of preamble here. First, so 6.3% of all diseases in the world are neurological disorders. Oh, wow. These include neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, but also things like epilepsy, cerebral palsy and brain tumours. And drug development for central nervous system disorders is notoriously failure prone. And these drugs take about 38% longer to be approved compared with non-brain related drugs. Wow. And there's been in recent years like a huge cutback on developing drugs for neurological disorders for this reason because it's not profitable. Why do you think this might be? Why do you think it's so hard? I'm sorry. I'm really fully digesting those statistics. That's, I again, have literally never, have thought a lot about the brain Mm -hmm. studied cognitive science, but from a like medical perspective, those numbers are really sinking in. I mean, I mean, the answer is it's fucking complicated, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it is the human thing, right? Like, you know, for instance, this is the reason why in cognitive science, we always talk about like your brain in a jar being like you right because mm. like that's the thing right yeah i mean that's that's my answer is it's just it's just fucking complicated yeah like adding on to that like if something goes wrong it's such a detrimental place for things to go wrong isn't it in terms of any of <laughs> yeah. this treatment yeah. you know if i had to pick a yeah. thing to go wrong it yeah. would not be the brain. that's a good point that kind of touches on the second point but the, the first point is it, yes the the human brain has an incredibly complex architecture but also it's incredibly inaccessible. It's impossible oh, to right. study. And because of this, we don't really have a full understanding of how it works, even after decades and decades and decades of study. And we don't understand yeah. why it fails and how it fails in most cases. That's a great point. Going back to animal models is that unlike organs right. that where you might use an animal model like for heart or liver... Yeah, totally. which are largely conserved between mammals, the human brain is actually much more complex than other mammals. Yeah. Um, which means that animal models are really lacking in this area. Yeah, that makes complete sense. But good human brain models can improve this. So that that down a bit is over. This is where the cool science comes in. <laughs> <laughs> and the first model I'm going to talk about is an organoid. Do you know what an organoid is? Uh, uh, I mean, uh, is it is it, is it a, a, like a cyborg organ, like an <laughs> android organ? No, not quite. But I mean, you know, you're in the right area, I guess. It's a great word, by Organoid. the way. Whatever it is, it yeah. better be. It's already cool. It almost makes me think of like mini organ as well. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Oh, is that it? Wow. I can't believe you guys haven't heard of these before. That's so exciting to me because it means I get to tell you about them. Why don't they use like organet or like organito? Oh my God, organito <laughs> would make me so happy. Can we can we petition to change can it? We? Yeah. Can we? <laughs> you certainly can. I, I feel like... Uh, people wouldn't take it as seriously if we called them organitos. <laughs> oh, who's a little organito? Oh, it's just a little organito. <laughs> so organoids are essentially miniature versions of fully grown organs that you have in culture. Whoa. Not everything can be an organoid if it's just if it's cells in culture. So to yeah. be an organoid, they must show some level of self-organization into the organ structure that you don't put them there, they organize themselves. Okay. They okay, are also okay. three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Wow. Most cell culture is in two-dimensional with a flat yeah. layer on a dish. And they often have some functions 
that the original organ would have, like hormone production, for example. Okay. But they are usually still lacking in some or all of these areas. Right. Ella, I, I don't know if you can help me. I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to visualize it. How would how would I if I walked into a lab and I saw that they were like working on organized and I bust in, like what would I be looking at, if you know? Yeah, so you'd basically be looking at a little blob of cells amazing <laughs> Probably, like like thousands of cells that look 3d you uh, they will almost always have a like a hole in the middle where there's like a fluid filled space which is a key part of organs that we can't simulate normally in cell culture right. in a flat cell culture for example think yeah. of the heart yeah. right but they're not going they're not they're not like tiny teeny versions of the actual organs <laughs> yeah it's not like um like a poly pocket version of like yeah, a, a heart. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. They have some of the same organization, but they don't, they're missing out in a lot of ways. So it kind of looks like clumps of cells stuck together. Yeah, I've, again, I've never heard of this concept. No. This is absolutely wild. Because, like, the fact that we can do that is mind boggling to me. The fact that we can get these cells to organize in a little petri dish and, like, and like look at it functioning are completely outside of a human body or an animal body at all you know just like that's that's fantastic mm -hmm. that's absolutely fascinating I feel like we've we've we we very quickly like burned through all the possible ideas we I would have had, which is like maybe animals, maybe yeah. and I, also I don't know if we're gonna get to this, but my first thought is like a computer simulation. But yeah, there's yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. a ton of uh, uh, potential issues with mm -hmm. that also. So I'm. I'm very curious. We're not going to talk about um, AI or computer okay, neural good. networks. Okay, good. Okay, then I can today. trash it. I feel like that's, that's been a, <laughs> uh, a fraught issue in... in um... It's not a human It's not a human brain. Maybe one day it will resemble something yeah. like that, but right, it's not. exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a ton of interesting value to examining that from a computer mm. perspective, but the idea that... It's it's like trying to build it from the bottom up versus from the top down, I guess. Mm. And it, it's 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 I, I see a, a ton of fraught things with it. I don't see how you could conduct this sort of science on a computer model. Yeah. So I'm very I'm very curious to hear about these organoids. Also, very quickly, um, I realize now it's it's organoids sounds like a like a, a group of villains in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle world where they'd be like, Cowabunga, it's the organoids. <laughs> yeah, gotta, yeah. All right. Now it's out of my brain, I can focus. <laughs> so we've talked about organoids as a as a general concept, but I need to talk about brain organoids. So the first brain organoids were made by Dr. Madeline Lancaster, who is a group leader at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. And I think the best person to tell you about brain organoids is Madeline Lancaster herself. So could you just explain to us what neural or cerebral organoids Whoa! are and how you make them? Sure. So basically, of course, we're interested in, in questions that are really unique to humans, which means we need a human model. And, you know, we don't want to go and do experiments with actual living human beings. So we need something in a dish. And so that's uh, exactly what we what we work with. We work with um, essentially little miniature sort of brain tissue blobs <laughs> um, in a dish. And these are um, basically mimicking the very early stages of brain development. They come from a special, oh. special types of stem cells um, that develop according to their own intrinsic developmental programs in the same way that a brain would develop, you know, in an actual embryo, except these are developing mm. in a dish. 
And um, we use these tissues to look at very early events of brain development that help set up the blueprint for you know the later highly complex and enlarged human brain. Wow! Oh my goodness! I recognize that first voice. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't take credit for seeking out this interview. I did this interview like three years ago. Oh, oh wow. For my uh, PhD at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you were like, there's going to be a podcast in three years. And she was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline there was talking about a special kind of stem cell that these organoids are made from. And this stem cell mm -hmm. is called an induced pluripotent stem cell. Do either of you know what these are? I have briefly mentioned them before in the Chimera episode. I remember you saying that phrase and that's about it. I apologize. I won't blame you if you don't remember. It was a long time ago. Obviously induced. Like we've we've created that thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Potent. Potent. Really strong. Plurry makes me think, no, that's like multiple different mm. is that actually okay <sighs> like not specialized or ability to specialize in a lot of different ways yes. yeah that, yeah you, that's what oh. potent in in relation to stem cells that's what potency means mm -hmm. something can be totipotent pluripotent multipotent unipotent yeah so we could actually break it down wow so plur so there's only one kind of totipotent cell and that's the zygote the thing that is happens immediately after the sperm fertilizes yeah. the egg Every mm. other cell after that is pluripotent. So, so sorry, say, say that again. The zygote is what? It's totipotent. Totipotent. <laughs> That's such a good word. Totipotent. <laughs> so we've had organoid and totipotent today. These totipotent. are totipotent. Yeah. Uh, so embryonic stem cells are pluripotent. They can become almost any cell type. Mm. That's so, which is mm. everything mm. but the extra embryonic structures. So things like the amniotic sac and those kind of things. Oh, okay. 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 Cool. Induced pluripotent stem cells. First of all, fucking cool. But it's when you take an adult cell, usually a, usually skin or blood, and you change the gene expression of that cell so it what? turns back into a stem cell with stem cell properties. Okay. So fucking cool. <laughs> this, this feels like... Um... Uh, like if we're going back to like the riddle metaphor, it's like, oh yeah, you just, it's like, how do you create a new substance? Oh, you just take an old one and then you turn it back into it. It's like, mm -hmm. I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't presented as an option to me. That's wild. In the history of cell biology, it's pretty new. Yeah. I don't think Aristotle was doing this, was he? <laughs> <laughs> it was discovered in 2006. Oh, wow. And you know, they're pretty incredible because it means you have an essentially unlimited source of stem cells without the ethical Holy issues moly. of using yeah, a stem cell from an embryo. They also have the advantage that they can be patient-specific. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. So if you, if you yeah. want to study a specific disease, say heart disease, you can take a cell from an adult skin cell from a patient with that disease, turn it back into a stem cell, and then turn those into cardiomyocytes, the muscle of the heart, and study what goes wrong with that cell. Can I? Would it be too much to ask you to attempt to explain how that magic happens of turning it back into a stem yeah, cell? Yeah, I can, I can. And you know why I can? Because I just wrote a SciShow video about this. <laughs> hey, plug! So the genes expressed in a cell are the genes that are turned on, are being turned into proteins. All cells contain all genes in their DNA, but mm -hmm. the cells that are expressed give that cell its 
specialization. A heart, right. a heart cell only expresses heart genes. A stem cell expresses its stem cell genes, which give it the ability to renew itself and to turn into other cells. And there are these things called transcription factors, which are proteins that attach themselves to DNA and they can turn mm -hmm. on and off specific genes. So basically, mm -hmm. um, the man who discovered iPSCs, Shinya Yamanaka, he found um, f just four transcription factors, four proteins that could turn on and off just the right amount of genes that it would go from being a fully grown adult cell back to a stem cell, which is wild. <laughs> that is wild. You know what I'm imagining in my head? I'm imagining like a row of like switches, right? Mm. That are like the genes and like, normally they're like inaccessible, but then this person discovered a Konami code where it's like, if you have these proteins, you can go like flip, 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 flip. You're, you're kind of not wrong because it's like um, things sit on the outside of, when DNA has been unraveled to be turned mm -hmm. into RNA and then protein, things sit on the back of the ah. DNA, uh, allowing mm -hmm, other mm -hmm. things to attach or not attach. And the, and and just so you know, the same thing happens in the in the forward direction. How you take stem cells and you mm -hmm. turn them into got it, got it. other types of cells. You apply the same things, and it's not and it's not just transcription factors. It's like you apply a hormone that will then downstream turn on other things that will turn on genes. DNA is fucking wild. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. It's amazing. It's incredibly, incredibly complex. So anyway, we have these iPSCs now and we can make Ooh. organoids from them and we can make organoids with specific diseases. For a long time, iPSCs were just being used as like this 2D culture, but now it's even better because you can do the same thing, but with a more complex interplay of many cell types that are more that more closely mimic yeah. what's happening inside of you. Now, when Madeleine Lancaster discovered brain organoids, this is amazing, she was a, a postdoctoral researcher in Jürgen Noblick's lab um, at the Institute of Molecular Biology in Vienna. He's a big, he's a big stem cell guy. And I asked her about this discovery because it's a great story. Actually, I saw a tweet from you a couple of weeks ago um, you tweeted a picture of your uh, lab book from about 10 years ago from when you were a postdoc in Jürgen Noblick lab and it was the initial experiments that made these cerebral organoids but that wasn't actually the plan was it? Exactly yes so it was it was a, a classic um, story of, of scientific serendipity. I was hoping <laughs> actually when I started in Jürgen's lab and I have to say this was the second experiment I did in his lab it was right at the very beginning Wow. I was hoping to um, to do a genetic screen using a pretty, you know, an, an emerging technology at that time. Now it's very well established called neural, neural rosettes. And these are basically where you take very immature neural stem cells. So the stem cells that will give rise to the brain and you put them in a dish and they will, um, you know, stick to the dish and make uh, and start, you know, dividing and multiplying and eventually generating neurons. Um, and I wanted to use those cells to look at, you know, a, a broad array of different genes that might be involved in, in neural stem cell decisions. Uh, but what happened with that first experiment was a bit of a failure at first. Many of the cells that I was uh, that I was working with just didn't stick to the dish that I put them in. Um, and instead formed these very large floating aggregates. No way. And in fact, in my lab book, I didn't <laughs> no even know what way. to call them. I just, in some places in the lab book, I called them colonies or aggregates or whatever but 
a few days later, I came back and saw these absolutely beautiful structures growing. And that completely changed the course of my postdoc. That's that's like literally science fiction. Like you come to the lab the next morning and it's grown three dimensionally. Like that's, oh my God. Isn't that amazing? I'm so, I love that story. I feel like a lot of um, scientific discoveries in the past have this like moment of like accidentally finding Mm. something. The discovery of penicillin was accidental, for example. Yes, of course. Yeah. But then... For it to have happened so recently, about about twelve years ago now, like it does, it does almost feel like um, there's this when we talk about like signs of the past, it feels like we've almost like used up all our good luck. But it's like no, there's still there's still chance Mm, stuff happening. mm -hmm. That's that's a great point. Also, I love the phrase scientific serendipity. That's great. Yes, it's so lovely. Yeah, I will say I don't this talk of scientific serendipity. I don't want to diminish the amount of work oh, that went of course, into yeah. ultimately developing <laughs> yeah. these organoids. The initial discovery is mm-hmm. an incredible story, but getting to something useful didn't yeah. happen overnight. And being able to recognize it as what it is, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and Madeline will tell us herself now. This is the final clip. The easy part was was that first experiment. The hard part came afterwards in trying to figure out how to do this in a reliable and robust way, um, how to generate tissues mm. of particular mm-hmm. regional identities, you know, in, in a reliable way that would have the structural characteristics that, that mimic early brain development. The best analogy I have is that it's like gardening. And, you know, when you plant a seed... Mm. You know, you're not building a plant. The plant is building itself, but you are providing mm-hmm. nutrients and oxygen, you know, mm. s- sunlight and and all of that. Um, but you need to you need to provide those nutrients according to the needs of the plant. You don't want to overwater your plant. You don't just blindly right. water the plants every single day. It will die, and you also don't ignore it. And so that's exactly well, what I do. these organoids <laughs> need as well. Is uh, sort of this uh, kind of a green thumb. You need to um, uh, provide the appropriate <laughs> nutrients at the time that the organoids need that. And if you don't time it appropriately, uh, mm, according to the needs mm. of, the, of the organoid, then you you don't end up with nice, reliable um, brain tissues. Uh, you end up with other things like heart tissue or something. So <laughs> it's pretty remarkable how important timing is. And then obviously, of course, figuring out exactly what the needs are, what nutrients uh, these organoids need. And so it's, uh, it's definitely an evolving field, field that continues to, to grow. Um, and, it, and I'm really happy to see the developments that have been made by others now who've entered this field and have improved these methods and made them even more reliable and applied them to different brain regions, making all kinds of different brain regions. Did I did I hear that part correctly where she said uh, that if you mess it up, you could be like, oops, I accidentally made a heart. Literally, I was just going <laughs> to highlight that, like, that, like oh, shoot, I've accidentally made a liver today. No. God <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it. She's not joking. Oh, my God. So uh, very early embryonic development, what happens is your tissue start to split into three different types of cells, mesoderm endoderm and ectoderm Mm -hmm, and then they layer themselves throughout the embryo each one of these layers will turn into um will have a group of different organs it will turn into so endoderm makes your liver pancreas the Mm -hmm. lining of your digestive tract mesoderm makes your skeletal system your circulatory system uh, and your heart 
and your ectoderm gives rise to uh, the top layer of your skin and your nervous system and your brain. But when you're directing stem cells down one of these pathways, it's very easy to push it just slightly off and it goes down the wrong pathway and it starts to become mesoderm instead of ectoderm. So it starts to resemble something more like heart tissue than brain tissue. I wow. I, it's just I thinking about stuff from this from both the DNA perspective and also the, the developmental biology perspective is so like completely remapping how I think about things to be like, oh yeah, the brain and the heart, not so different. Which also isn't, haven't we always known that, that the brain and the heart aren't oh, so different? God damn it. <laughs> Thank you to Madeline Lancaster, who did not know that she would be on this podcast. Those quick, um, just to give credit, those clips are from uh, the podcast Stem Cells at Lunch Digested, which I used to run many years ago. So they obviously worked on this discovery to create the brain structure more closely, meaning it had layers of organised neurons and specifically had ventricles, which are the fluid-filled spaces in the brain, something Mm. that has never been seen in 2D structures or can't be seen. Mm -hmm. And the Mm. first published report of these brain organoids was in 2013 um, in a Nature article titled Cerebral Organoids Model Human Brain Development and Microcephaly. So microcephaly is a developmental disorder where the baby's head doesn't grow correctly, so it comes out too small. Mm -hmm. Cephaly, Mm -hmm. head, microsmall. So in the study, they basically used iPSCs from someone with microcephaly um, and then use those to make cerebral organoids. It's a very interesting paper, but very complicated. Mm. And and mm. and this study I'm was sure. published almost ten years ago. And many people have since you know improved on this technology, as Madeline kind of alluded to. They've focused on achieving more complex and accurate architecture of specific brain regions rather than maybe looking at the whole brain. And they're also looking at different neurodevelopmental disorders like microcephaly or lysencephaly, which literally means smooth brain. But this is where we run into an issue. Disorders like microcephaly and lysencephaly are disorders about how the brain grows specifically, which Mm. means brain organoids are very useful because that's what they do. They grow. Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty much all they do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they grow and they become organised, which is inc- incredible, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but they don't make proper connections and they don't have the same electrical activity as normal neurons in the brain. Yeah. So this means you can't study disorders that have problems in these areas. Mm-hmm. And because they're grown in a dish, they also don't receive a blood supply. Oh, so they don't get oxygen and nutrients. Uh, which limits how big they can grow before you start to see a uh, cell death in the inner regions yeah. of that structure. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. kind of reassuring to know that we can't grow fully functioning brains. I was going to say, I was going to say the exact same mm-hmm. thing, Caroline. Like, as a scientist, I'm like, oh man, yeah, we can't, yeah. I can't make a dummy brain whenever I want. But like, as a human being, I'm like, oh, okay, there's no electrical signal, there's no blood. <laughs> like, like yeah. okay, yeah. it's literally just, yeah, yeah it's just cells. Okay. Mm-hmm. it's a it's a give and take here and that's a good that's a good thought and something we might come on to a little bit later Mm. but one of the downsides of not being able to make these kind of go a bit further is that we can't look at later developmental stages either let alone adult uh, brains undergoing things like alzheimer's yeah yeah and dementia yeah totally but there are people uh, whether you think it's a good idea or not working on finding ways (laughs) around these problems Oh, are there Mm -hmm. now? Oh, okay. That's fun. So in 2015, 
Pascal et al. reported the first neurons in culture to show electrical activity wow. and form synapses between them. But these weren't Very fully cool. complex organoids, mm-hmm. and they were 3D spheres of neurons, of different types of neurons, but they weren't like organised like organoids are. But in theory, okay. you could apply this technique to organoids, and I imagine people are. Yeah. But I'm not going to go any further into that today, because what I really want to talk to you about is these two fascinating studies that came out this year. Ooh. Ooh, hot off the presses. Hot, it really is hot off the press. I just want to also, it's, it, can I recontextualize it? In the last interview that you just showed us, this was not, like, it's that recent, sorry. That's yeah, just, yeah. It's just so yeah, cool. Yeah, Madeline wouldn't have known about this stuff. Yeah. So the first study is titled Maturation and Circuit Integration of Transplanted Human Cortical Organoids. Or, to simplify that, human neurons put in rat brain. <gasps> oh! <laughs> oh! Again, like you said, Tom, from a scientific point of view, really, really cool. From how I feel about it, though, a bit weird. Yeah. Let's go through the study and see how you feel at the end of it. Um, So this study came out in October, I believe. Oh, wow. Wow. And so in the study, 500,000 human brain organoids were grown and transplanted into the somatosensory cortex of newborn rats. So they're developmentally equivalent to a human infant, Mm -hmm. broadly. Mm -hmm. So they did MRI scans throughout the course of the rat's life and... They showed that the human tissue multiplied and grew um, about to the size of a normal human neuron, which is just has not been possible in culture. And most importantly, they started to receive blood supply from the rat cells, mm. which is probably why they could grow bigger. Yeah, yeah. By six months, uh, the human neurons made up about a third of the rat's brain. Whoa. Holy moly! The human neurons made connections with each other and they did make connections with rat neurons, but they remained completely isolated from the rest of the rat's brain. They weren't integrated amongst the rest of yeah. the brain. Let me um, send you this an image so you can get an idea. Oh, wow. You can see how isolated the neurons are. Oh, interesting. Obviously, that'll be in the show notes. Um, so that, and I think that does kind of make a difference to the way I feel about mm, it. Mm-hmm. And what was also really interesting is the human neurons became active. So when the rat's whisk, this is so good, when the rat's whiskers were stimulated, the human neurons lit up, showing they were receiving sensory information. That's so, I, I assume they weren't like doing anything with that information, but they were like receiving it. If that makes sense. If they were receiving it, the the rat was probably feeling it. Ah, okay. But it's not okay. like, to, to Caroline's point, it's not like this is then processing it and then giving feedback signals, right? Um, maybe. <gasps> it could be. So basically they did it the other way around too. They, they stimulated the human neurons in the rat's brain every time the rat took a drink of water. And eventually, if they stimulated the brain, the rat would automatic would like go and drink water showing that they were also receiving feedback from the human neurons wow i don't i don't know if this does make (laughs) me feel better about it you know (laughs) well i guess my reasoning is that um sensory receiving and giving sensory information Mm. is not the same as consciousness or yeah or thinking or emotion 
This is fine. Again, did not know this was even on the table no. as possible. No. <laughs> I, I have there all sci-fi authors need to get on this because right? I was not prepped for this. Yeah. Now the researchers did take this research a step further. So they developed the technique with uh, healthy brain organoids, but they also made organoids from the stem cells of patients with Timothy syndrome. This is caused by a mutation of a gene needed to create channels that deliver calcium to cells mm -hmm. and it basically leads to cognitive and physical disabilities. When they transplanted these organoids with the Timothy syndrome mutation, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, they basically so stunted growth and they, they made fewer connections, they had less electrical activity Ooh. and they were less organised compared to the healthy neurons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can see now how this system would help researchers yeah, yeah. study right. these disorders which would have been incredibly difficult to study previously right so yeah the system is overcoming major issues with organoids like blood supply yeah. and electrical activity but of course this now comes with a whole new set of ethical issues yeah the human yeah. chimera <laughs> angle we, you, I'm, we've been speaking a bit about how we go mm. but how do you feel now again it's, it's those two separate parts of me that's like wow this is fascinating and really positive and really beneficial and then i also worry about the direction that it could go in you know mm -hmm. like as it, as it is right now i don't feel too negative about it i just worry a little you know mm -hmm. yeah the, the 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 reassuring thing and, and this is the same with the the genetic chimeras episode mm -hmm. which is that like when we see these headlines it's literally it, like like this says here on science. It's like human neurons merge with rat brain. Yeah, and it's like and it's like what when when this context six to seven percent of all diseases are brain disorders. They're forty percent slower for pharmaceuticals get developed. Is that correct? Yeah. And so like it's like hey, what if we could find a way to study them? in a way that to access this inaccessible organ, and, 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 and like that yeah. is the direct. Yeah reason for this research it's not it's not it's not to play god which is yeah, reassuring yeah. but of course I, <laughs> we keep we keep doing these you, you see me and caroline doing this thing where we're like well but clearly you can't do this and i was like no actually you can and it's like okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm actually just not gonna put my opinion into this one today i i i i I, I don't have it fully formed in my head, but it's interesting to... Can we also to... say, that's the yeah, other thing. Again, yeah. these papers literally came out like uh, a month or two months ago. Yeah. This year, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, we have no clue what the further limitations of this right, research great point. could yeah. actually yeah. be. So, I mean, hopefully this next study will make you feel better because there are people studying brains without mm -hmm. animal models being involved. So this came out on the 12th of October. <laughs> What's this so wild? Just another way to recontextualize this is that the last time you did a topic, you wouldn't have been able to cite these studies. That's so true. <laughs> like, that's, that's so true. This is titled In Vitro, In Vitro, for those who don't know, means outside of the body in culture. In vitro neurons learn and exhibit sentience when embodied in a simulated game world. Oh, <laughs> the faces we are pulling right now, everybody. Uh, just there, there are some parts of that I really like and are interesting. Sentience is is a is a is a, mm -hmm. a very interesting word. That's a big that's a big word, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. We'll get into it. So. 800,000 human neurons were grown in a dish on top of a microelectrode array. Um, so this can just both stimulate the neurons 
and record their responses. Mm-hmm. The system is sometimes called brain on a chip. This this one is specifically <laughs> like called dish brain. Another brain. <gasps> I love that even more. <laughs> so this neural network actually, and I don't know if Tom will take issue with me calling issue it neural. With that? I think they have um, squatters rights on the phrase neural network yeah, being yeah, neurons yeah. in the network. <laughs> yeah. So the neural network learned to play the classic video game Pong. Um, For those who don't know, I don't know how you wouldn't know what Pong is, but Pong is a game where you have two paddles on either side of the screen and a ball moving between them. You move the paddles up and down, you hit the ball between. This is half a version of Pong that they were playing. They were the paddle, the neurons. So the position of the ball was communicated by specifically placed electrical stimulation and the speed of the ball was communicated by how quickly the electrical stimulation was given. Um, And this was all input in one specific region of the chip. The response of the neurons was recorded in a different region of the chip and were used to move the paddle up or down. And the neurons actually adapted their firing in a way that would move the paddle up and down to hit the ball and their responses improved over time. That That's cool. That is cool. That's really cool. So the researchers were able to teach the neurons this using an idea that neurons tend to like predictable patterns of electrical activity. So when mm-hmm. they missed the ball, they'd receive mm-hmm. an unpredictable stimulation in a random area with a different frequency. So to avoid that, they basically learned to hit the ball. That's, that's oh. a really important aspect of this is mm-hmm. the like reward punishment mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. But the researchers, obviously, they considered this they say in the the title sentience they consider this a type of intelligence a type of sentience and this is an interesting thought um, sure is. so sentience or consciousness doesn't have a strict definition but generally no, it does, well so it does actually it, mm-hmm. it's being able to play pong actually that was established <laughs> when, when atari came out yeah <laughs> generally what people consider sentience as if you need to kind of define it it well, not as, but they think it requires a central nervous system, right? So in mm-hmm. nature, non-sentient animals are considered jellyfish, corals, anemones, sponges. And then yeah. you get into like riskier and unknown territory where you have a central nervous sure. system like insects, but we don't know if they're conscious or not, as we discussed in a previous episode. I don't know if you can yeah. consider 800,000 cells in a dish a central nervous system. It has 80 times more neuron than a jellyfish and only 20,000 few, fewer mm. than a fruit fly. So who knows? Okay. Uh, what do you think? I think the use of the term sentience here might be mm-hmm. a bit of a strong word to use. I think um, neurons in and out of context greatly affect how I think about it. One of the biggest things from cognitive science that I took away from it is the fact that, right, I feel like we're taking for granted these like these inputs and outputs that are given and the training mechanism, right, that is happening in mm-hmm. like the connections to the brain are in some ways just as important as the brain mechanism, right? And so it, it's existing mm. in this very specific context, which feels very different than like, like if it, if it was doing this on its own, without sort of like having to be handheld or like specifically designed for it that that feels very different but at the same time this is like i don't know because we we learn that way too like our brains learn that way you know we have a we have an ingrained reward system in our brain to teach us what is good and what isn't good that is true i will say one one quick thing which is that like you know playing pong is obviously something that a computer computer neural network can do 
right? And so in in some ways, it it's amazing that it's done through like a biological substrate. But at, on the other hand, it, it's it when we you know uh, the operation is. Very, I don't agree. Um, I don't agree with you there necessarily. Oh really? Yeah. I'm, that that is not as impressive. AI can play chess ever than we can play chess. We don't diminish sure. the the skill of a chess master for being hu- like having the human uh, power to have co- to have learned that way. Yeah, it's it's with all of these discussions, I feel like what ends up happening is this like push and pull where it's like. Is this structure very smart, or are some of our some of the things that we think of as intelligent behaviors maybe not so intelligent? That is you know that I mean? is a perfect that's a perfect mm. uh, kind of question, which I don't think we can answer today. Yeah, yeah. But also that still comes around to the chess master thing. I don't think we question sure. that someone who has learned all of uh, these tactics in chess isn't intelligent um, for learning it that way just because a computer can do it better and quicker. That's a good point. This is a can of worms. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to leave this topic on a note of diminishing... <laughs> scratching our heads. No, not just scratching or, sorry, our heads, yeah. but also diminishing the work that was done because of the buzzwords mm, mm. used, like sentience right, and intelligence. Right, that's a great point. That's yeah, a really good point. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. they did uh-huh. is very, very uh, interesting and technically um, yeah, impressive. That's a great point. And so I want to leave this on the, the potential benefits. Of the potential benefits of DISBRAIN, one of the authors, Professor Carl Friston from University College London, said the unique opportunity here is to see how a drug could affect neurotransmission at mm. a synaptic level and that's crucially how this translates mm-hmm. into behavior. In short, how would a drunken DISBRAIN cope with <laughs> playing Pong? Oh, yeah. that's fun. Obviously, this yeah. is still incredibly rudimentary and there's going to be need to be more development of yeah. uh, systems like this uh, to, before we get meaningful feedback from the structures it's not an organoid it's just neurons in a dish with some yeah. self-organization but on the other hand when you're talking earlier about how far do we want to push these these brain models there is a benefit to simplicity in brain models when a brain is so complex you sometimes can't tell what changing is actually having an impact so simple models can be really beneficial mm, too mm. The last thought I want to leave you on is basically the brain is complicated and we need to try different approaches if we're going to figure it out. Yeah. That's it. Thanks, Boy, guys. Howdy. Wow. Thank you. This was so interesting. Yeah. And like a little bit mind boggling, but like in such a good way. Yeah. And you it's, know? It, it's really cool to see it from this journey of like accidental discovery yeah. in, a, in a lab to then. <gasps> yeah. These, to, to these experiments that have built on that yeah and and again it, it is so interesting from a problem solving perspective right where it's like the issue is all of these myriad brain diseases and this inaccessible organ this compl- extremely complicated inaccessible organ and i would have never in a million years been like Hey guys, what if we like turn some skin cells into a into a miniature brain and then have it play ball? Right? <laughs> it's it's amazing. It's really amazing. I'm sure you've noticed how giant corporations are controlling more and more about what we consume, whether it's our food, our news, or even the shows we enjoy. The Greatest Generation is a show that stands up to Big Star Trek and says no. We can laugh about costumes that fit too tightly in the groin area. We can make a Star Trek podcast that's basically only about that. The Greatest Generation. 
the show for free and independent thinkers about Star Trek. And the groins of different costumes. Reviewing every episode in order. So subscribe to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org. You'll be doing your part in telling the Star Trek industrial complex that they can't control your mind. This episode, I'm asking, are cats a liquid? I forgot. I had forgotten. (laughs) This is a great question. This question came from, I was reading this book... Slime, A Natural History Slime. by Suzanne Wedlitch. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a rocking book. It's a great book. Um, and I say I was reading it. This is the opening paragraph. And I loved it <laughs> so much and was like, okay, I have to, I have to talk about this. So she says, some forms of matter seem to unite the properties of solids and liquids. For example, cats. Which category do they fall into? The answer should be an easy one. Should be solid. Physically speaking, solids return their shape while liquids fill their container. Mm -hmm. Cats Mm -hmm. seem unequivocally to be solids until they demonstrate their aptitude for easily slipping into the smallest of gaps, almost flowing into them. The French physicist, Marc-Antoine Fardin, researched tongue-in-cheek the physical classification of cats between a solid and a liquid, touching on his specialist area of rheology. So I went and read the paper that he wrote. That's, a, that's an actual paper that he wrote. What was that field? It was called what? It's rheology. And we'll talk a bit more rheology. about rheology in a second. Oh, yeah. boy. So I know about this already, yeah. the paper, because it won an Ig Nobel Prize. It did. Yeah, we were going to talk <gasps> about that at the end, but we can have a little... A little chat about that. Do you know what that is? Yes, I do. And I talk about it quite a bit on my TikTok. The Ig Nobel Prize is a a tongue-in-cheek slash, not parody, it's a parody of the Nobel Prize. It's for (laughs) scientific, mostly scientific achievements that are strange or seem unnecessary. (laughs) But they, they they have like a tagline, which is, at first they make you laugh and then they make you think. So oh, then amazing. they're poking fun at it, but at the same time they're saying, oh, this is actually interesting yeah. though. So uh, I really like the Ig Nobel Prizes for that. Yeah, so this won that award in 2017, I do believe. And obviously I went ahead, I read the paper, I watched a few TED Talks from Fadin because he's talked about this research quite a lot. And like, obviously it starts off being really funny and then it gets into actual science about his field. And I wanted to just share some of that with you today because it's a, it's really fun. I'm so excited. Yeah. So as someone who doesn't know about this paper, what? <laughs> I, I mean, we're going to talk about what definitions, because obviously if we're going to be figuring out if something is a solid or a liquid, we need to know what the definitions of solids and liquids are. So do you two want to maybe share what the definition of a solid is in your heads? My definition is, you know, I'm thinking of like atoms, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like in when they're in a, a crystalline structure or when they're in the, a structure such that they can't separate very yeah. easily. Oh, well, now I'm questioning my definition, aren't I? Because I'm like, I'm like, wait, what is the boundary there on yeah. the atomic level, huh? Because, and you know, of course, and then there's obviously like non-Newtonian fluids mm-hmm. that are like famously... Uh, have properties that are semi-physical and then semi-liquid but you know in in high school science it's like the a solid is like all the atoms are together a liquid they flow and then a gas they flow more freely Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and you, you have that solid liquid gas state famously with water ice 
Ice is solid, water is liquid, water vapor is gas. That's like as basic as you can get with the states of matter. Blue eyes, white dragon. You're just like you're just saying words. <laughs> <laughs> what? Ice is ice is solid. I know. I don't know. No, you're, no, you're making sense. Liquid. It's just my brain just completely like short circuited at some point. There and was like, <laughs> yes, you, Yu-Gi-Oh monsters. Ice is solid. Water is liquid. Trap cards are purple. You can activate mystical space typhoon at any point in your turn. That's exactly what started happening in my head then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could have slipped anything in for the fourth one, and you would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's such like basic science. So if we talk about the stuff that we will have learned at school, very briefly, for anybody who doesn't know what Tom was just talking about, <laughs> the theory is that atoms are like bonded together and that's what forms mm-hmm. this matter. So take ice, for example, those H2O mm-hmm. molecules will be bonded together. They can't vibrate very much. There's no kinetic energy mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. They are in a solid shape. As ice heats up, those bonds begin to break a little bit. They have a little bit more fluidity to them, a bit more kinetic energy. They can move around a bit more. And that's how you get that flowing shape. But it's still sort of together, but not as together as it was in a solid. And then Mm -hmm. in a gas, it's heated up more. Those bonds are broken. They're filling the space that they're in. They're moving around a lot. That's very basic. But obviously, that book sort of gave a slightly different definition of what a solid and a liquid is. And right, which was interesting. Yeah. And it was one that, that I understood, but I did notice I was like, interesting yeah. that it's... Yeah. What, say, yeah. say them again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on it again okay. in a second, but I want to just put it out there. Like, based on that atom definition mm-hmm. of what a mm-hmm. solid and a liquid and a gas are, would a cat be... A solid or a liquid? A solid. It would be as solid because you can't, you can't like um, move your hands through a cat, yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> is my definition. Which would be so sad because then you wouldn't be able to pet them. That's why God made cats solid. <laughs> so, so Fardin talks about the definition as well in the paper. In the second paragraph, he says, Historically, the popular distinction between states of matter has been based on qualitative differences in bulk properties. So... A Mm. solid is a state of matter which maintains a fixed volume and shape. Mm -hmm. Liquid is the state in which matter maintains a fixed volume but adapts to the shape of its container. And Mm. a gas is a state in which matter expands to occupy whatever volume is available. And are these derived from somewhere else or are they his own definitions? These are pretty standard definitions that we do use. Oh, okay. So so these don't necessarily come down to a molecular level then. Exactly, yeah. So these definitions are actually a lot broader than I was expecting them to be. Mm-hmm. It's a lot broader than we're taught in school as well. Yeah. So yeah, so to simplify these definitions, solid, fixed volume and shape, liquid, fixed volume, mm-hmm. shape can change, gas, both of those things can change. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we take those definitions... What what category could a cat then fall into? Liquid. They because could... they change yeah. they change to the I shape of the container sometimes. <laughs> if they if they want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Famously, I, I think it was wasn't Einstein that said if 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 I fit, I sit. <laughs> I think. I'm now going to share the PDF document. I just want you to have a little look at some of the figures that Fardin uses, because I think they're so funny. He uses these to make his case. 
especially figures. Uh, this is linked in the show notes if you'd like to have a look at it. Figures 1A through to D is cats in various containers. Ella, would you like to describe some of these? (laughs) They're they're mostly classic images that you would see of a cat in a, for example, in a bowl, a glass bowl. The cat is now bowl shaped or in a wine glass. The cat is now wine glass shaped (laughs) or in a sink. The the cat is now sink shaped. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so basically he makes the argument that actually he doesn't even make the argument that cats are a liquid. He just sort of goes with it from the off from the beginning of like, yeah, cats can flow and we're just going to talk about like their ability to do that. But of course, we can't just go, ah, cats flow into containers, they squeeze into containers and therefore they're a liquid. We can't like we can pour right, like that's... yeah, no. The other thing we have to consider is how long it could take the cat to flow. How long it takes for it to go into these spaces. Because oh, obviously... I can fit in a bowl if I really want to, but it's exactly. going to take a long time yeah. to squeeze yeah. me in there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where Fardin's field, specific field of research comes into that. Um, so that thing called rheology, that word that I said earlier. Are we going to talk about like the flow rate of cats? We are going to talk about the flow rate of cats. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> so Rio, R-H-E-O is the Greek word for flow. Mm, so right. this field is literally the study of how things flow. I don't mean to be crass, but is this is that also where the the suffix for diarrhea comes yeah, from? Is yeah, that what I literally have that in my script. Uh, <laughs> it's found elsewhere in places like rhythm. Oh, that comes from that root word Rio, and diarrhea also comes from that root word Rio. And then my band Diarrhythm will be <laughs> this Sunday at Brooklyn Steel. This is actually a really important field, like mm. understanding how long it takes for objects to flow. There's a saying, which is everything has a flow in the world of rheology. They've clearly never seen me dance then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fardin talks about, and this is talked about a lot, like the idea that mountains can have a flow if you look at them for long enough. That's one, isn't it? Yeah. Mountains have a rheology. We have studied the rheology of mountains. Get the fuck out of town. Yeah. That rule. <laughs> that makes sense. It oh. kind of makes me feel, think of like gla- uh, glaciers, right? The movement like, oh, very That's yeah. another one that's talked about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So. It, I, I do get it. But also just to be like, I'm studying the fluid dynamics of Mount Everest yeah. right now. Yeah. That rules. That's so interesting. It's so cool, isn't it? Um, and I was like, because I was struggling with understanding this concept for a little bit. And one uh, PowerPoint <laughs> presentation that I was reading put it into like this idea of to us, mountains appear solid because we are looking at it for a short period of time. Right. But say if like a god existed, he could just see these mountains flowing over the entirety of his lifetime. And therefore, maybe to that higher entity, mountains could be a liquid. And that sort of put it into context. That's kind of nice. And I guess if you're going the other way around, I'm sure there are like some (laughs) some atoms which move so quickly that to us, we that you know, to them, if they could see, we would look stationary. You know, we would look completely unmoving. Yeah, Yeah, we could be. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. This theory is useful to not just as like a thought experiment about if cats and mountains can flow and if they're liquids. It's useful in construction. 
to understand the rheology mm. of dried concrete and things like that. Yes, because all the houses in the UK are slowly moving and that's why there's so many cracks in the walls of all the terrace yeah, houses. Yeah, literally. You know, you think to yourself, solid things don't flow and then you see, have you ever guys seen those videos where like the... Um, a bridge hits like its its frequency and then it starts to like yeah. turn into jello. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that mm -hmm. is. That's a really good example. So obviously research goes into how to prevent dried concrete from flowing. In the other direction, we could want things to flow faster. So Fardin talks about one example in a TED talk he does about how firefighters might want water to flow more quickly out of their equipment. Oh, mm -hmm. And actually some firefighting equipment has got filaments in it to help direct the flow of water in a quicker way. Makes sense. So that's places Super where research can be useful. We also talk about it for like the flow of human movement. So stuff like getting mm. people out of concert venues or yeah. off the tube in safe ways. Those are other examples of how we use the field of rheology to apply it to this. I, I do also know, just from a computer science perspective, I have in, deeply instilled in me the fear of God of, of fluid dynamics just being so complicated. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like famously impossible to simulate because there's just so many compounding factors. So Yeah, if, if it was you know, easy, there like wouldn't be a flow. whole a field of study about it yeah, yeah probably yeah. not yeah 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 so those are some examples specifically about why the field of rheology is so useful this is the sort of stuff that Fardin has researched when he's not talking about the rheology of cats <laughs> <laughs> um he is a legitimate scientist just putting that out there and honestly like if you do have 10 minutes maybe 20 minutes to read this paper like it is written like a legitimate piece of research which at times is inaccessible because some of the language that's used in it is just like, it takes a while to decipher. Um, but there are bits in it where like, just from a first glance, I'll go through some of them in a minute. But it's just so funny. It's so good. <laughs> so what Fardin did to establish the flowiness of cats is he had a look at the time taken for a cat to relax into a vessel, a vessel or a container. Mm -hmm. um, he called this the cat's relaxation time. In the actual field of rheology, this is called thixotrophy, T-H-I-X, atrophy, thixotrophy. Okay. Uh, and it is looking at how long it takes for a liquid or for something to flow, given like the shape of the container or where it is. Mm -hmm, so stuff mm -hmm. like water can sometimes ball into like a little droplet rather than flowing oh, yeah. and figuring yeah. out why that happens, basically. Mm -hmm. So relaxation time. Or thixotrophy. We're going to talk about relaxation time because I, I really enjoy saying it. Um, it's not just impacted by the thing flowing itself. It's not just impacted by the cat. It's also impacted by the surface or the material that the mm. flowy thing mm. is relaxing into. And actually, again, this theory is really, really important because it can even refer to things like how cancers can spread and stuff like that, the rheology of cancers. Oh, very interesting. So Fardin talks about that a little bit in his TED talk. I'm not going to go specifically down that route, but I wanted to talk about the idea of blood rheology mm -hmm. and how blood flows and the link like, to cancer development and spread. Um, for example, there was one paper that I read that, uh, this is a quote straight from the paper, blood rheology in patients with ovarian cancer is impaired due to inflammatory processes and that's quite a well-known fact so the flowiness of blood mm -hmm. can often be impaired in people with ovarian cancers and this impaired blood rheology because of that inflammation 
This, in turn, can increase the probability of thrombosis and promoting tumour progression and metastasis. So how the blood is flowing can impact the development of more tumours, basically. Got it, got it, Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is super interesting. And again, like, a super important part of the field of rheology. We're going to use it to talk about cats today. (laughs) So what do you think could impact the relaxation time of a cat? How do you think different surfaces could impact this? I mean, I imagine like a super slick glass is easier to to settle in than like a cardboard box. Uh Or maybe they like the cardboard box more and would relax into it faster that's what i was about to say it's like actual joy joy of the surface joy of the surface (laughs) (laughs) we put them into a slippery cold metal box liquid might flow quite quicker but a a cat might not yeah yeah what else do you think could impact it what could like maybe maybe temperature could impact a cat's relaxation oh yeah i imagine if it's like a hot day and they're they want to just like laze yeah yeah i don't know Oh, it's it's kind of like water, you know, when a, or like a like ice. Yeah. When the ice gets hot and it starts to melt. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's all of these things which we apply to real life situations, and Fardin talks a lot about cats instead. So I'm going to read a quote from the paper. Here, the roughness of the cat's fur would be a determinant oh. as the roughness of the substrate but probably somewhat have the opposite effects. Indeed, cats are often found to spread on rough substrates, which there's a lovely figure of this in figure two. I love this paper so much. But they have a low affinity for substrates that smooth their fur, like water. That could impact the cat's relaxation time if they are near water. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, Mm -hmm. yeah. Counterintuitively, gravity seems to enhance adhesiveness, which was just one of my favourite little things. So he uses all of this information and he establishes a relaxation time of between one second and one minute for cats. Ella, thoughts? <laughs> that sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very slow for a liquid. <laughs> which it is. is. <laughs> but pretty fast for a mountain. Yeah. That's such a good that, that, so When you take all of it into consideration, not only are cats meeting the definition of a liquid because they flow into a container but they are flowing in a quick enough time that we can observe it. Therefore, yeah. I, all I'm getting is that li- liquidity is a scale. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Liquidity is a spectrum. And uh, f- from solid down to gas, you're somewhere in that you're a liquid. Yeah. We're more, we're more liquid than mountains. Mountains are more liquid than planets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just, I guess, I just want you to know. Anytime I'm looking into space, what I'm doing is I'm picturing a glass bowl and I'm dropping like a Rubik's cube in it, and then I'm dropping a cat, and I'm like, they really are different. Like, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is, but like I am just having fun in my brain right now. It's like, hee hee hee. So yeah, essentially, Fadin doesn't make an argument or anything for cats being liquid. He goes straight into the assumption that cats are a liquid and cats have a rheology, oh, which I freaking, I love that. They do have a rheology, right? Look, the, the argument here is, or the, the understanding here is that everything has a rheology, well, yeah, even things that Everything aren't. has a flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can observe the flow. Therefore, there could be an argument to be made that cats are liquids. And I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. Yeah. What I do want to read, we're, we're wrapping up a little bit now. One of my absolute favourite parts of this paper are the conclusions and acknowledgements, which I would like to read quickly to you now. In conclusion, 
Much more work remains ahead, but cats are proving to be a rich model system for rheological research, <laughs> both in the linear and non-linear <laughs> regimes. Standing questions include the potential implications of the rheology of cats on their writing reflex and whether the non-linear self-sustaining mechanism for turbulence in pipe is applicable to streaks of tigers. I'm not entirely sure what some of that means, but he's just like, no. can we apply this oh. to big cats instead? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, <laughs> He goes on to say, very recent experiments from Japan also suggest that we should not see cats as isolated fluid systems, but as able to transfer and absorb stresses from their environment. Indeed, <laughs> in Japan, they have cat cafes where stress <laughs> customers God can pet it. kitties and purr their worries away. <laughs> So stupid. The fact that those were like one sentence separated is very funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the acknowledgements or some of the acknowledgements read, no animals were harmed in the making of this study. I thank L and J.F. Barrett for providing a reliable technique to load feetless catus into different geometrics. <laughs> Step one, bring an empty box. Step two, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's, that's very good. Yeah. Very good. Um, again, I would definitely recommend giving the paper a little bit of a read. It's really, really fun. Of this whole research, which is very fun research, mm -hmm. and, and the whole concept is fun, and I imagine it didn't take him very long to write it either. But um, the point, you know, if we look back to the fact that this won an Ig Nobel Prize, isn't that this has inherent value as yeah. a research paper, but mm -hmm. that it's making you think about the field of rheology exactly. in a different way. Yeah. One yeah. of the things that makes rheology so complicated is the, are these like secondary and tertiary interactions, right? Like mm -hmm. you were saying, like the surface, the fluidity of the liquid, the temperature, like there are like third and fourth and fifth layer interactions that you have to think about. Yeah. And what this paper is pointing at are like 10th and 12th level interactions of like, how's the cat feel that day, right? Yeah. And stuff yeah. like that, which is, <laughs> which is half a joke. But at the same time, it, 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 it's still talking about the same thing of like, there are so many factors yeah. into these complex systems. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So we're in the last paragraph of my script and I literally wrote, this paper is silly, but it's not written in a silly way. Like the That's language used great. and the theory yeah. behind it is actually, like it was too complicated for me to understand reading this paper. And it took a <laughs> lot of work to go and understand some of it. And I just love that, like, I don't know, this made me see some scientists in a very human way as well of like, yeah. like being really passionate about this field and just wanting to have a bit of a goof with it mm. and like write about it in a different way. I also, you gotta... You gotta imagine the number of uh, students or people who maybe don't even aren't fully, you know, in in the world of reading papers, possibly yeah. reading this because there are silly pictures, and then and then yeah. getting a sense of of how to read a paper like that mm -hmm. is very cool. And yeah. actually, I've seen as I was writing this, I was seeing TikToks about this paper being made, and I was like, <laughs> I I love that. Um, oh, it's Dexter MP4. Oh, made, yeah. a, made a video about this again amazing and oh, he, he talks about like the photos and stuff like that in the paper as well um fantastic tiktoker go and give him a follow yeah, the other thing i like about this paper is that like science can often be really really scary to people who don't have a background in science mm -hmm. and papers like this and then the articles that came out of this paper like after this paper as well hopefully make it 
possibly a little bit less scary for some people and be like, oh, that's funny. I can engage in science in this way. Um, so what do you think about that? That's what we're trying to do with this podcast. <laughs> Don't, don't let don't let the, don't let maximum fun know we're secretly trying to teach people you think it's just for jokes <laughs> but i think it's, you don't see it you see it at like a science communicator level pretty regularly i think it's for me it was that like is a, true ooh, yeah. we're seeing it at like a, at a paper level at like a researcher level as well the ig nobel awards are a fantastic like starting place for that that was that was sort of where I wanted to leave it was just it's really refreshing to see scientists wanting to make science accessible in this sort yeah, of way. Absolutely. I think a lot of them do, yeah, I think. Definitely. But they just don't necessarily have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Or even just like we have that stereotype, don't we, of scientists being very, very serious people. And Fardin literally says in a TED talk he was like goofing off from writing an actual paper. And just wanted mm. to write something silly. And he had a bunch of his friends help contribute to it and stuff like that as well. And I, I just love that. I think that's so fun. So yeah, so that's where I wanted to leave it. The full paper is linked along with the TED Talk that Fardin did, which I would also recommend. It's really, really fun. You know, I will say, though, I'm not fully convinced. I think the only thing could, that could convince me is if people in our Discord submitted <gasps> pictures of their cats as liquids. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the only thing for it. Yeah, we need a bigger sample size. As good scientists, we should take <laughs> it on ourselves to increase the sample size used today. So if you would like to share photos of your cats, uh, you can find the link to our Discord server at letslearneverythingpod.com. Hi, it's Kevin from Max Fun HQ. This year for Giving Tuesday, we're inviting you to a super fun tarot event. It's got some of your favorite Max Fun hosts, and it's for a great cause. Join Depression Mode's John Moe, Carrie Poppy of Ono, Ross and Carrie, Stuart Wellington from The Flop House, Tom Lum from Let's Learn Everything, and Ellen Weatherford of Just the Zoo of Us. Your suggested $10 donation supports National Casa GAL and their work advocating for kids in foster care. That's this Giving Tuesday, November 29th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out MaximumFun.org slash events for more information and tickets to The Tarot Show with John Moe. Today's miscellaneous topic is the best thing since sliced bread. So uh, have y'all heard of bread? <laughs> <laughs> no, Tom, what is it? Yeah, please explain in great detail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So bread was invented in 1952 by Dame Meredith Bread. Um, <laughs> no, bread is tremendously old. Um, and of course, we've, we've, we've talked about a lot of old things before. Uh, we've learned about speech archaeology. We've learned about surgical archaeology. Uh, but And so now it's my turn to dip my toe in because we haven't talked about bread archaeology yet. <laughs> and so I want to ask, how would you apply what we know to bread archaeology how would you find old bread okay so what we know is that biological <laughs> soft biological material like that does not preserve well yep so it must be incredibly difficult to find old bread maybe because this is such a specific niche bit of knowledge i have there's this one youtuber he eats old ration packs oh, like old yeah, army yeah. ration packs it's really weirdly interesting watching this man be disgusted by everything. <laughs> I've seen the equivalent of for old cereals on TikTok. Right. Yeah. Mm. But mm -hmm. this guy was given 
some old like hard bread that they got from the, the like Ameri- hard, tack. hard tack from the yeah this american civil war <laughs> and that thing's a fossil <laughs> it was basically wait, wait 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 hold on the american wait, the civil war yeah the civil war so it was <laughs> a uh, it was literally fossilized bread you know or like cracker wow. and he ate it and it was just obviously it was disgusting how did they how did he get it and who let him eat it is other questions i want to know <laughs> so i guess bread can fossilize is would be my my guess on that my guess is is possibly it could have gotten buried with people a lot mm. and also in poop is my other guess Oh, that's very interesting. I feel like by the time digestion happens, it it has lost what makes it bread. Probably. But I will say there are famously loaves of bread that from Pompeii that literally you can <gasps> see the maker's stamp on it no, still. No. Which that's is amazing. So and those are good. amazing. That's so good. But Ella Ella has hit on something interesting, which is that cooking is in a sense a type of fossilization in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're gonna get into it. So uh, this is actually I don't think surprisingly... I said that, but I, I like that you reached there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think you did. Uh, so this is actually a surprisingly important question, finding old bread, uh, because bread is often used as a demarcator for prehistoric humans. Oh. Uh, as NPR put it, quote, The established archaeological doctrine states that humans first began baking bread about 10,000 years ago. That was Mm -hmm. a pivotal time in our evolution. Humans gave up their nomadic way of life, settled down, and began farming and growing cereals. Which is why, in 2018, when archaeologists found bread that was (gasps) 4,000 years older than that, it was a big deal. And I'm happy to say that the people who found it and analyzed it are basically bread archaeologists in everything but name. That's amazing. The bread sample was found by uh, Amaya Aranz Otayegi, and she is an archaeobotanist. uh, What a great name Mm -hmm. of a a profession. That's so good. We definitely will do like a main science topic on this another time just because it's it's super interesting. But uh, she was studying this prehistoric fire pit uh, in the country of Jordan, and she found these samples, these little black bits that were literally three millimeters in length. And she knew that was bread. Ella, let me tell you, there's a great quote from her that is so that really emphasizes like why you hire an archaeobiologist. Uh, I'm gonna send you guys a picture of what these looked like. They they just look like little. Like, they look like pieces of moon rock almost, you know? It looks like coal, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep in mind, though, that these are, like, enlarged. In actual size, they're millimeters. Mm. Yeah, they they do sort of look like uh, little meteorites almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And the paper analyzed only 24 specimens. So you could hold them in your palm and sneeze and the study would be gone, <gasps> basically. Like, it's that. Oh. Um, and as uh, Otiegi told NPR, quote, they looked like what we find in our toasters. I could tell they were processed plants, but I didn't really know what they were. And I was like, fuck, I... Uh, yeah again that's why you hire an archaeologist because i could not have told you Mm -hmm. that i would have literally just like looked it over and been like that's more dirt i guess there we go Mm. or even like uh embers or like cinders Mm. right like coal Mm -hmm. but she was like oh no that's organic knowing that much how could you confirm that it's ancient bread we're looking at i have to assume you can do like molecular analysis on yeah Maybe that mm-hmm. like the uh, the layout 
of the molecules Ooh, is yeah, like yeah. very specific yeah. for bread. Well, it's even it's even bigger than that. So or, or it's it's a bigger scale than molecules. And so we'll, we'll get into it. Is it the air pockets in the bread? That's like that's exactly mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from NPR. They go, she took her burnt findings to a colleague, Laura Gonzalez Caratero at University College London Institute of Archaeology, whose speciality is identifying prehistoric food remains bread in particular wow. how do people get these jobs <laughs> what it's it's amazing well at first i was like well what does that mean and so i looked at the actual paper that amaya and lara published and they say quote after mixing flour and water occluded gas cells of 0.01 to 0.1 millimeter develop in the dough the molding of dough modifies the gas cell structures by making the small air bubbles burst collide and combine into big ones if this dough is directly charred it shows a hollow matrix with large closed voids covering more than 30 <gasps> percent of the surface i was oh i read that i was like fuck me i guess that's what it means to specialize in bread <laughs> in particular but it's really interesting they they base their work also off of um other researchers recreating the bread in modern times, right? Like oh. using what they would have had, but then recreating oh, it. Oh, that of course. Yeah. 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 That is a cool part of the job. You get to like make old food as part of your job. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and like source oh, the old also, ingredients. Probably, and Hey guys, probably doesn't taste good, oh, to be honest. Probably but... not. I don't know how, it's bread. Like how bad could it taste? Well, it's mm. not, it, I believe this one isn't even made with wheat. It's made with like a, like a, a grass of some kind, oh, I believe. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. Oh, I want to um, eat that though. It is real. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if anybody can source some grass bread, not of the uh, medical variety, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we want to try that. I'm going to I'm going to send you guys another picture from this paper. It's fucking amazing. So this is an electron microscope photograph of <gasps> some of these air pocket structures if you can describe it. Oh, just like if you've got uh trypophobia, you don't want to see it. Basically. It looks it looks <laughs> like the surface of uh the moon or something yeah, or it, Mars. It, it yeah. really does. It's amazing. So yeah, so it's basically just like those grain those like 3 millimeter long pieces uber zoomed in to look at yeah, the air pockets it's really on them. Cool. yeah amaya has a super great mini seminar on like the the science and the anthropological implications of this and it will be in the show notes it and uh i definitely want to talk about some of that on like another topic but this is a misc section we're already way off topic yeah you, actually you've done quite a lot of science uh-huh, here already uh-huh. and yeah <laughs> what's going on tom all right no let's dive right into our main course then which is bread bread uh or more specifically the best thing since sliced bread which does seem to have a solid origin uh because sliced bread has an origin so uh, journalists Catherine Stotes Ripley and Suzanne Hogan did some amazing reporting on the town where it was invented, uh, which is Chillicothe, Missouri in the United States. And as the story goes, basically, as uh, bread was starting to be more mass produced and bakers could produce uniform loaves of bread, that meant bread could then begun to be cut uniformly. And so this jeweler named Otto Rowetter designed this like 10 foot long metal box with blades in it for cutting bread. Uh, and as they report, quote, Rowether's invention was all ready to be manufactured at a plant in Illinois when the factory was destroyed in a fire. <gasps> he lost everything, Ripley says, all of his design plans, his equipment, everything. And so he just kind of gave up until Rowether soon felt ill and his doctor told him he didn't have long to live. Oh so he God. sold his jewelry business and went all in on building another bread slicing machine. Oh, wow. <laughs> what? 
The jewellery game's out. Diamonds, gold, worthless. You know where it's all at? Bread. <laughs> <laughs> Just you wait. Soon everyone's going to say it's the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> um... And I mean, but I joke, but it did pay off. As the Chillicothe Baking Company said in an advertisement in 1928, sliced bread is made here. The announcement of a new sliced bread service is significant in that it gives the Chillicothe Baking Company the distinction of being the first bakers in the world to sell sliced bread to the public. As the ad goes on, the idea of sliced bread may be startling to some people. <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly, it represents a, de a definite departure from the usual manner of supplying the consumer with baker's loaves. As one considers this new service, one cannot help but be won over to a realization of the fact that here indeed is a type of service which is sound, sensible, and in every way a progressive refinement in baker's bread services. Wow. Wow. It's so, it's just so funny to think of something as commonplace yeah. as as sliced yeah. bread as mm -hmm. something revolutionary yeah and here's here's the important thing to contextualize some of this is that of course we're reading advertisements yeah yeah, yeah. Do, do you think in in the in the like private daily yeah. lives of these people they were like holding <laughs> up these these loaves of sliced bread like wow i can't believe and, like, what tears they're streaming down your eyes. <laughs> Uh, but that that like advertisement context is, is, is sort of what we're going get, to get into in a second. But I have to say, here's the real kicker. Do you want to know what one of their slogans was? It was, quote, announcing the greatest forward step in the baking industry since wrapped bread. <gasps> Ooh. Like wraps, like tortillas? No, like wrapping them in like wax paper. <gasps> oh. Oh. I did not see this twist coming. I, I would unfortunately wrapped bread doesn't have a clear inventor. I was really hoping Aww. like the the wrapped bread inventor would be like, this is the best thing since leavened bread. And then it would like go back, back all the way. Of years. Time. Yeah, yeah, and then it's like to, to, to 14,000 years ago, and it's like, this is the best thing since those burnt breadcrumbs we just made. <laughs> the phrase is the greatest forward step since wrapped bread. And the fact that the greatest thing since blank is already being used is, is going to be telling of what's going to happen next. So uh, linguist Pascal Traguer put together this like rough patchwork of newspaper ads that starts to show this phrase evolved as bread innovation evolves. I am listeners. I'm trying my best to air quote as loud as I can <laughs> to prepare you all, but I there's no amount of preparing that will not make this so uh, yeah, buckle up. So a few years later in 1933, another company made something called Golden Toast Thick and Thin, which was a sliced bread that had the gimmick of having thick and thin slices in the same <gasps> Oh, that sounds horrible. What a terrible idea. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Uh, and that marketing material said, quote, we've merely added the first improvement since sliced bread. Thick and nice. thin slices okay, in okay. the same uh -huh. mm -hmm. Which is hilarious because, boy, was that not the case. No. That did not <laughs> yeah. catch on. And that just does not sound good to me at all. <laughs> the next year, a different company made bread that printed the date on it. And they called it dated bread. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, which is, the date, the date yeah. it was going to expire, I assume, or the date it was made. Or I think I think it was the date it was made, <gasps> I believe. Had a, and they couldn't just say, this is bread. They couldn't just be like, we have bread with the dates on. They were like, 
marketing dated bread dated yeah it, it, it's kind of like bragging that your your books have like page numbers on them it's like okay that does that's, like, that's it's like ooh, we have numbered books now <laughs> and they say quote this is the most progressive step that has been taken in the baking industry since sliced bread was introduced so uh, i'm seeing the pattern here mm, but yeah yeah yep. what is surprising me about all of this is that the bread industry had so much and in air quotes again, innovation. It reminds me of a so like a social media platform like Facebook yeah. app when they add like a new feature which no one wants or cares about. Or maybe it does improve things just slightly, but you don't need to like announce it like a marketing thing. It just I like know, it's yeah. just like doesn't make why just are you telling bread, me yeah, this? Yeah. I got one more zinger to throw at y'all. So five years later, another company has an ad for something called twin style bread wait let me can we try and guess yeah sure go for it um, twin style bread <laughs> twin style okay uh, okay so double uh two loaves stacked on top of each other that's where my brain went oh is it like like pieces of bread but they're not cut all the way through that's <laughs> wow, Caroline is not a world leader in bread innovation. Oh God! Uh, they split they split the loaf in half and they wrap each half individually. Why? Why? For what reason? <laughs> I I will say bread freshness was a, a much bigger issue at that time. Mm -hmm. But like, it's so comically mid century that if. If this was like a someone was pitching this on a TV show, I'd be like, no one's gonna believe that. No. <laughs> Could you just remind me of the what what's the decade that this is happening in? Uh, I believe the 30s or the 40s. Okay, so I won't offend anyone by saying this time, this period of time <laughs> sounds incredibly boring. If this, right? <laughs> if this is what was going on. They were marketing it like this. Literally the ad says in all caps try this amazing innovation i will i will say about this kind of advertising which was very uh, endemic of this period yeah. of time mm. yeah. especially as um processed foods became popular yeah. there wasn't just yeah. bread right it, it would have been almost everything like mm -hmm. um, oh, totally. microwaves started to come around um in the, the kind of decades after this and selling those was like a whole like thing as well things that seem really obvious to yeah. us and it reminds me of this one advert which i always bring up i'm obsessed with which is when they started to sell <laughs> sticks of butter <gasps> yeah um, oh and there's this advert of like this family sitting around with whole sticks of butter on their plate like eating them like <laughs> <laughs> like a hot dog or something wow because they that's how they used to sell them it's like oh you could eat it as a snack a stick of butter <laughs> oh no oh no oh no Ella, you're you're really getting at uh so i'll say this last line and then we'll, we'll get into this 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 meta discussion but um at the top of this advertisement they finally say the magic words they say it's the newest thing since sliced bread which is mm -hmm. basically you know, it's the phrase. And yeah. what but what's what what's becoming clear by now is that this is obviously about more than just sliced bread, right? It's about this rising, this confluence, this rising trend of both industrialization and invention and also marketing, like all coming together in this perfect storm. I went through a few newspaper articles while researching this and all the ads are just like so hilariously of that time. Uh, I saw an ad that said electrical gifts. 
Uh, and in the ad copy, every time they say electrical, it's capitalized because <laughs> they're like, this is something special. I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but this also makes me think a lot about how um, phrases become common in language. Oh, Ella, you are going to... You'll see. Uh, <laughs> so what happens is, is exactly that, is that as this popularity of slogans like this rises, it starts to turn almost into a comical pastiche like it's a reference at this point uh and then in a way that it would be almost impossible to trace something special happens and this isn't the first instance of it but in 1951 the paper the northern Whig in ireland wrote quote stuart granger is the latest heartthrob in the united states miss kilgallen quoted one damsel is saying he's so divine sorry let me get my He's so divine. Every time he comes on the screen, I felt <laughs> sick in my stomach. Uh, and another, I've dreamt of him every night since I saw the picture six weeks ago. And the third, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. <gasps> he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and now, at this point, it's no longer just a slogan or a joke. It has evolved into something else because we're, not, we're talking about bread, but we're not talking about bread anymore. Mm -hmm. And I've tricked you because... To repeat it, I don't want to talk about sliced bread. I want to talk about, quote, the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what that that is, Ella? What the term for that phrase is? Oh, um, no, I don't. I don't. No. When we talk about the best thing since sliced bread, we can talk about it on a number of levels, right? On, on one level, we're talking about bread and the invention of bread and the invention of the bread slicer. On another level, we're talking about the rise of marketing in the mid-1900s. But on a third level... The best thing since sliced bread isn't any of these things. What it is, is an idiom. Mm, yeah. Right? The, the, the reason we say the best thing since sliced bread is partly because of slicing bread, partly because of advertising, but it's entirely because of the way human language works. Uh, so now we're going to talk about that. Ella, did you have anything you wanted to add? Basically, the meaning, the meaning was lost to time almost. And I think about the fact that a phrase like um, the best thing since sliced bread has um, persevered for so long and will probably continue for much longer, uh, partly because of how long it took to c come into like the the collective of the people saying it. Mm, mm. There's a point, I'm getting to a point here. Yeah. So we have so many phrases cropping up now all the time because of the internet that come in and yeah. out so quickly because mm. they can come in so quickly, they go out so quickly. That's very interesting. There's a thought here. I just, I find this idea of the fact the fact that phrases like the the best things in sliced bread and other phrases like this have lasted yeah. so long are the way that they entered the mainstream mm -hmm. versus the way that things That's enter really now, which is so quick and 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 uh, fleeting. Yeah. Anyway, I don't talk about that. I'm going to talk about some other in, uh, nuances of uh, idioms, but I'm I'm curious if mm. it'll jostle anything loose by the end of this topic. So, in the book Modern English Usage from 1926, uh, which is right around the time that the bread slicer was being invented. English lexicographer H.W. Fowler said that the closest translation of idiom is a manifestation of the peculiar. And as we've seen, the best thing since sliced bread is peculiar. Uh, but idioms aren't just peculiarities, they're a part of language. So uh, as a paper by Hordetska and Osadnik put it, quote, Idioms are not a separate part of the language which one can choose either to use or to omit. They form an essential part of the general vocabulary of English. Idioms are not only colloquial expressions, they appear in both formal and informal style. And so what that means is they have some really interesting linguistic theory behind them. For example, 
Uh, some idioms are known as an irreversible binomial, uh, which is just a really fancy way of saying two things you can't switch the order of. Um, so that's why you can't say phrases like the bees and the birds. Ew, mm. gross. Or between a hard place and a rock or turf and surf. You can't match and mm. mix them in the same way you can't say Max and Mitch. Mitch, you say mix and match, right? And so linguist uh, John Said described this sort of like unbreakable cohesion of idioms in a way that I thought was super interesting. So he said, quote, a type of fossilization results in the creation of idioms, expressions where the individual words have ceased to have independent meanings. So for example, the phrase spick and span, nobody knows what either yeah. of those words <laughs> means, right? And and so, right, much in the way that fossilization is the process of, like, the organic material being replaced by inorganic material, the meaning of the word is is completely dead in these idioms. Uh, and so I just thought that was such a really um, interesting way, because likewise, you don't need to know the history of bread to say the phrase, best things since sliced well bread. Now that I know the history of the best thing since sliced bread, if anyone says it around me, I am going to go into an... You're going to say, oh, best thing since yeah. twin bread? Actually, do you, know, do you know what you're saying? Yeah, this, is cult, this is culturally insensitive. This, this podcast is the best thing since thick and thin bread. <laughs> but that ambiguity can sometimes cause issues. Um, the quote that I mentioned earlier from Hordetska comes from a paper titled The Problem of Translation of Idiomatic Expressions from English into Polish. Uh, and they mention many idioms that are sort of, they believe are impossible to translate because of the yeah. cultural differences. Uh, one of my favorites that doesn't translate to English is to sell something for a song. And I think that's 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 a, a beautiful phrase. But Hold on, there's one I really, really like of these. This is, I'm really sorry if there are any Swedes listening. Skita idet blas gapet, which means to shit in the blue cupboard. <laughs> well, yeah, don't. It means to like do something stupid or make a fool of yourself, but they don't know the original meaning of it either. So <laughs> this, uh, oh, so really? it's lost in both ways, you know, in, mm -hmm. the same, in the same way spick and span is, I guess. Yeah, as soon as you said that, that Polish one, which is a lovely one, yeah. this one, <laughs> this horrible one came to mind. It, it is interesting because I think in that paper, they're, they're kind of uh, pessimistic about the, mm. about idioms in a way. Um, but really, after spending all this time digging through sliced bread, I actually feel weirdly optimistic about idioms because the truth is like all of language is like this right all, all of language is a kind of forgotten history that we are building off of and that is cultural and i think what makes idioms special is that they're self-aware of that like i think of an idiom is like a, a real life version of a citation link on the wikipedia that's like asking you to click on it right like to to combine two definitions from earlier an idiom is a peculiar fossilization. Mm. And I really mm. do think that's mm -hmm. a perfect word for what's going on because much in the same way that prehistoric fossilized bread gives us a hint into the past, the phrase, the best thing since sliced bread has also fossilized to give us a hint into the past as well. Idioms may be like clunky in language and in translation, but the beauty of them is that they're so clunky that sometimes you say the phrase clean slate or wipe the slate clean. And then you think to yourself, huh, people have been having this conversation since we were writing on slate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like all the time we are looking at the burnt 
breadcrumbs of language. We just have to be curious enough to go looking for them. Yay! I'm giving you a clap because you did a very... I'm sorry, this is gonna sound this sounds really pedantic, I apologize, but you you did you did such a good job of weaving a story there and bringing them mm. back together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the prestige, I've tricked you. It was really, really first of all, fascinating. I love this yeah. kind of historical linguistics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also you saying wiping the slate clean there reminded me, first of all, how many for how many idioms are there for that same thing? Wiping the slate clean, yeah. burying the hatchet, squashing the yeah. beef. And that I don't know any of those <laughs> no clue what any of those backgrounds Ooh. really are apart from wiping the slate huh. and they're all really old yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> i have so many like thoughts about this that just like they're quite incoherent though so i went like, oh <laughs> put them on you <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it's me oh wait shh 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 silence quiet quiet yeah. because do you shh shh very close you can hear something creeping in what is it what is it oh it's review corner today's review comes from eleanor w from apple Podcasts, and they say an eclectic and erudite delight um you you misspelled it it's it's spelled erudite that's fine. <laughs> Not a lot of people know. Tom. Uh, they say, Caroline, Tom, and Ella do a wonderful job of introducing the audience to diverse topics of knowledge and the serious study of them in a terrifically non-serious way. Um, <laughs> who would have thought you could learn about the awkwardness of generational categories, the researcher who won a Nobel Prize for chugging H. pylori, and the Twilight <laughs> Vampire's similarities to real vampire bats all in one podcast. Yay! Ah, thank you so much, Eleanor. Thank you so much, Eleanor. We really appreciate it. <sighs> oh, still me, isn't it? Um... <laughs> long record, guys. Long, long record. A good one, but boy. Do you have any plugs or shout outs? I would like to give a little shout out. Um, a friend of mine wrote uh, an episode of SciShow and it's super cool and we're so proud oh, of yeah. it. Ella, Ella did that. Um, I did that. <laughs> we'll definitely throw the link in the shout outs. It's just great. So everyone go watch that. Uh, like and comment and say, don't, never mind. I was going to say, uh, say everyone should listen to the podcast. Don't do that. Cut this out. That's fine. <laughs> no, do it. No, do oh, it. Do it. <laughs> I, I, I'll plug out us. You can find all of our social medias, our Discord server, and just a lot of general fun stuff over at letsknowneverythingpod.com. You should follow all of us because we're all amazing. You should come and hang out with us on Discord because it's a fun place. I'm sure we're going to be talking about so many idioms. I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah, share your favorite idiom over on the Discord server as well. Let's wrap this thing up. Woo. Today, we learn about the interesting if ethically confusing ways we can look <laughs> at human brains outside of a human we learnt about the rheology which is a great word of cats <laughs> and we learnt about the best thing since sliced bread <laughs> join us next time where we will learn about everything Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lunt, and Caroline Roper, with editing by Ella Hubber and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunt.
if you had heard of Bonfire Night in the UK. I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Oh, so also called Guy Fawkes Night. Have you heard of Guy Fawkes? Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Do you know... Do you know about Sweater Day on the East Coast? What Sweater Day? Have you not heard of... It's no. like... um. I don't, I don't think it's a West Coast thing. So what you do is you knit a sweater in the face of uh, your favorite author, actor, or whatever, just like on your chest. And everyone walks around. And the point is you're supposed to guess who the other person is. That's really and funny. And if, if you can guess, then you get to murder them because this is a joke and I'm lying to no! you. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.